Hello and welcome to Ready Steady Read with me Chris Kane and my co-host James Lavery. In this episode we'll be discussing biographies. We'll review Cory Doctorov's Little Brother, a story of teenage rebellion in our increasingly surveillance happy society. There's the book swap where James and I each swap a book we think the other will enjoy but wouldn't normally seek out. And then there's I Write where James looks at the latest online writing and I find the best new technology that's changing the way we consume our literature. But first tonight we caught up with thriller writer Paul Henk at the launch of his latest novel and first asked him why had he chosen a small library for the event i i was speaking to a librarian when i was doing a book signing at uh, border shop and she said fancy launching in one of our libraries and i said yeah okay i'll do that and this is one of the biggest libraries they've got so i got invited here the new book's called the seventh circle Mm -hmm. tell me what it's about it's the idea of revenge, basically going in circles. Somebody commits an act of terrorism, another member of the family goes for revenge, he gets his revenge, and the other family come back because they want their revenge, and it goes round and round in circles, which is one of the problems that we're facing in reality with um, Islamic terrorism, because they blame us for... Everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. And this is a character you've used before, or at least your main character is linked He's linked to this one. Yeah, I couldn't fit, I couldn't fit my main character from my political thrillers, particularly into this kind of story. So I made the the main character in this book is cousin. So it meant that the other Nick Hunter, the other character, the famous one, has been in all the other books. He can appear as well with a cameo role, basically. It's a standalone book, in in that it's not directly linked to your family saga, your family historical saga, or indeed the Nick Hunter novels. Is this a good starting point for people to, to get to know Paul Henk, or, or would you you rather they went back to some of the earlier stuff first? Uh, no, the advantage of bringing out a book like that is they don't need to go back to the earlier stuff. They could read that, you know, The, the Seventh Circle, and, uh, oh yeah, I enjoyed that. What else has he written? And then they can go back into the sequence, you know, the sequel, or the, the books as they follow through. I have written every book to be totally standalone. Then the other thing that I find interesting is you write these political thrillers as you describe them, they're cracking good reads, they, they, you know, they demonstrate really a mastery of that skill, but then you also write the family saga, the family history saga, and the two things don't seem to me to fit together. Well they don't, um, I don't know, I, I'm very interested in history, I've enjoyed taking real historic events and putting my characters amongst them, and as a result I've I, and I didn't plan it this way, but in all sincerity, James, I've, a, I've built up a reputation of writing accurate history, which people have enjoyed finding out about. Chris and I have talked about this before, and we always think that one of the critical elements to a good book is to have that immersion in a total background that's different, perhaps, to the one to which we're all used to on a day-to-day basis. So I can't disagree with that at all. Tell me about the historical novels, just briefly. Well, it started off... I, I, I took the... Af- uh, the, um, the Abavan disaster because my father was there digging the kids' bodies out and, mm. and all that and at my school they, their brothers were in my school and I, I just wanted to write a story with a happy ending I mean that, that was for me it wasn't for anybody else to read it which is what I did um, and people have enjoyed it so. and the Nick Hunter books is he James Bond for the 21st century? well he could be um like Bond, he believes in um, kill him first and talk to him afterwards, which is something I think we should be doing more of. 
um, if I could put it that way, especially on the anti-terrorist stakes. We've just had the uh, commissioner of police in, in London has just admitted within, you know, what, two months ago that there are 230 to 240 mainstream Eastern European active criminal gangs um, in the London and Southern areas. And these are the people that uh, run the prostitutes, bring in the, the weapons, that's where the weapons are coming from, and bring in the drugs. And I've already written a book on it, Chaos. Tell us about your writing routine. I write during the winter, because I spend spring through to summer to the early autumn book signing tours. Yeah, We've, we've met before yes, on one of your on, yes. tours. So I'm, I'm at my uh, say typewriter, actually my computer, at about quarter to nine in the morning and I'm there until six o'clock in the evening and I take natural breaks and make a cup of coffee and a sandwich for lunch and if I make a mistake and I've written two pages which is actually doesn't fit in I, I, I cross it I know I cancel it out um, but I have a target I have a I expect to write approximately 3,000 words a day I, I will write 120 to 130,000 words in approximately 11 to 12 weeks, first draft. Paul, well, one of the things we're trying to do with Ready, Steady, Read is introduce people to, to new authors that they've perhaps not come across before. You've got 10 books under your belt. The Sun's called you the new king of the blockbuster, but a lot of uh, our listeners will not have come across your books before. Why do you think that is? <laughs> I, to be honest, I'm, I'm often asked and I don't know because you've heard what people have had to say here tonight. I get that all the time. I've got... Chris, you've seen some of the emails. I've shown you some of the stuff that I've got from readers. And I don't know. It's a very good question. And I, if I knew the answer, I'd probably be a lot further ahead career-wise than I am now. Except the statistics for an author are 15 years and 10 novels before you get anywhere. You get the odd flash in the pan. I can think of one or two of them who their book won a prize and has gone to the top of the list and... Um, they're made from that moment on? Well, an awful lot of them, it happens with the one book and it doesn't happen with any other book. And I can name a lot of authors where that's happened. Second, third books have bombed, but they're trying to make it on the back of the first one. I, I've been the opposite. I've been building up for 10 years. Tell us now, Paul, what's next? You've, you've got the seventh circle out now. Where are you going from okay, here? Okay, the next book is the new Nick Hunter book. 11 or 12 weeks ago, there was a, the big parliamentary debate was about dirty bombs coming into Europe, right? A dirty bomb is explosives with plutonium wrapped around it. That's actually the big problem with, with Pakistan right now and the Taliban. I've already written the novel. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the manuscript is finished. It needs a little bit of polishing. I've got one or two ideas. I've got a couple of scenes I'm going to put into it. So that will take me come out at the end of the year. Um, and then I'm writing a final uh, family saga of this family anyway. The book is called The Seventh Circle. Can I use that old cliche? It's available in uh, all good bookshops. Yep, certainly it is. And if it's not there, like most books aren't there, it's held by the biggest stock of books in Britain and they get them within 24 hours if it's not actually on the shelves. And of course, www.henk.co.uk. Yep, definitely. Yep. I'll have a visit on my website, see what I've done. And they can certainly buy autographed copies through that. It's time for the book swap, that part of the show where James and I each swap a book we think the other might enjoy. And James, do you want to go first or will I? 
Well, by the look on your face, I think I should get the pain over to begin with. You carry on. Have you got a downstairs lavatory in your house? Uh, yes, I do. I do as well. And in there, I've got a little shelf where I put all these ridiculous books that I get given at Christmas time. You know the ones that you see in the shop? They tend to be on a table down the front. You think, oh, that'll be great for Uncle Chris or, or whoever. I, I know the very thing. Well, I've got a whole section in the downstairs toilet with these books. And I thought you might like to read one of them. Uh, they, they come in, this comes into the category of the most ridiculous book I have ever seen. Go on, go on, Carrie. What it's is it? by Kevin Beresford, and it's called Roundabouts of Great Britain. Oh, thank you. It is a collection of pictures of roundabouts. Have a little uh, flick through that. Lovely. That's just... I can't imagine that anybody would give me such a thing and that I would uh, take it with grace and favour. If, if I was given it for Christmas, somebody would get a crack around the ear with it. It's actually... It, it's, it's interesting up to a point to flick through it. I mean, it's in the perfect place when it's in the downstairs toilet. Well, it's very much true. toilet literature. And I would recommend that one for anyone who's looking for a present for someone they don't like this Christmas. I think that would be a very good present. And it would have the great advantage, mind you, it's glossy paper, never mind. This time I've brought you experiences of an Irish RM, resident magistrate. You might remember this being made into a TV series. It's by two women called Somerville and Ross, and it's a bit stage Irish. There's a series of stories in it. Um, about the adventures of this resident magistrate, a fellow who comes from Great Britain, lands up in the country somewhere, gets in with a kind of Anglo-Irish hunting crowd, flurry knocks, people like that. And they're all individual stories, although there is a good, strong storyline running through a lot of them, but it can be picked up and read, you know, with... You can just grab the middle of it and go from there, or you can start at the beginning and work your way through it. It's funny. It's not hilarious, it's not P.G. Woodhouse, but it's very entertaining. But that's Experiences of an Irish RM from Somerville and Ross. It is still available. And my roundabouts of Great Britain, Kevin Beresford. I'm sure that'll be lovely. I look forward to flicking through that. That's our book swap for this programme. Now we're going to talk about a subsection of literature that seems to be growing every single year. Every single Christmas you go near a bookshop, you will see more and more of this type of book in this particular section. A sweeping generalisation or a statement of fact first. All celebrities will publish an autobiography. James, what do you think? I think it's a statement of fact. It seems very much to be the case that people are anxious to tell their own story or to have it told for them in some way. And we've even got the the kind of uh, post-death biography going on at the moment, haven't we, with the sad case of Jade Goody, whose book continues to sell remarkably well. Is it, do you think that we like a good story or, or we're curious about the very personal details that we expect to see in all biographies today? I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that we want to hear all the down and dirty details about people. I think a lot of these biographies sell on that basis. And what about the celebrities who have led quite a mundane life, most of the Big Brother people, for example? Do you think that some celebrities make up for these mundane lives they lead by promising to reveal juicy details about those more famous. Monica Lewinsky springs to mind for that one. I think that's absolutely the case. The issue here is, are they trying to make money? Do they have a story to tell? Some people only have a short story to tell. One imagines that Monica Lewinsky's story was a rather short one. Uh, and But, OK, good luck to the girl. Let her make her money. If people are prepared to pay money for it, that's fine. This month you've been reading Parkinson, the autobiography of the great television interviewer and journalist Michael Parkinson. What did you think of it? You know, I really enjoyed this one. And I think what's very good about Michael Parkinson is he does have a story that goes back beyond the television years. He started out as a journalist in the 1950s when newspapers were at the height of their powers, so he's got some interesting tales to tell from that. But he's also 
a man who got into television right in its infancy. He started off uh, at the BBC when it was only 20, 30 years old, and he got into commercial television right at the very start. So he's grown up alongside that, and he's got some good stories as well. So if you like broadcasting, you're going to get some interesting tidbits there. But if you're just like a man who's met everybody, you're going to get lots of stuff from this. Well, that was what I liked about his shows, and that you did indeed get everyone on them. Silly question perhaps to ask about Parkinson, given his background, but is it well written? It is incredibly well written. It's as easy to read his words as it is his interview style is to watch on the television. It's engaging without being controversial or shocking, which is unusual today. We expect shocking revelations from celebrities. He doesn't have many of them in there. It's a sort of book you, you can read entirely on one lazy Sunday afternoon curled up in front of the fire in the middle of winter. I really, really enjoyed this one. What did you like most about it then? I think I liked hearing about how he set up some of the big interviews of his careers, I mean, particularly the ones with Muhammad Ali. I think he interviewed Muhammad Ali three times. And they're famous, you know. You can still see clips of them on YouTube. So how he talks about that is very good. Orson Welles as well. I, I never saw these interviews, but when he talks about Orson Welles off screen, he sounds like an incredibly uh, entertaining character. There's so many things that goes on behind the scenes in order to, to get to that stage of doing the interview that it's interesting to, to read about him chasing the guests and trying to get them on and the ones he's like the ones he's disliked he's just got he's got lots of little stories which is quite fun I, I think that would be great fun because that's what i like to hear as well one likes to hear the backgrounds of these things but was there any bit of it you didn't like do you know what annoys me most about biographies is that you've got to read through about 100 pages about the person's early life the bit you don't really care about i don't really care what his relationship was like with his father or whether he was bullied at school the good thing about parkinson is because he knows how to tell a story he's made it as interesting as it's possible to be but it's still a bit of a slog to get through the first uh, the first 60, 70 pages in this book. And also, he, he could have been a professional cricketer. He, mm-hmm. he, tried to do, he had to decide whether to be a professional cricketer or a journalist. I know very little about cricket, other than I like watching it with a beer. I don't understand it, but I like watching it. There's too many cricket stories in it for me. Anything surprising about it? Any surprises that you came across that you didn't know or understand in there? One thing that I like about a good biography is that there will be one thing that surprises you. And in this one, it was that he was the youngest captain in the army during the Suez Crisis when he worked in the PR department. Now, you've been reading Paul Grady at my mother's knee. What did you think about that one? Well, first of all, let's take the title. The title comes from an old music hall introduction. It's one of those things we say, I would now like to present to you Mr. So-and-so, a man who learned to sing at his mother's knee and other low joints. And it's very much written in that music hall tradition. The, the interesting thing about it is it really is very much about his early life and notwithstanding what you were saying, I found that part of it all quite entertaining. He came from Birkenhead. He was, a, I suppose you might call him a Liverpool Catholic and he makes no secret of that. Uh, but it's an entertaining thing. He grew up in the kind of circumstances in which I grew up myself. In the kind of back streets of Birkenhead he was. I was in the back streets of Belfast, but the corner shop, the, the things that they watched on television, all that stuff was had resonances for me and I I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Paul Grady's a man that spends his life hiding in characters like Lily Savage. Does he let you into Paul Grady in this one or do you feel that there's a barrier that he does with his his stage characters? No, in fact, the, the, the interesting thing, and this is the bit that I suppose we're anticipating a question we might ask at the end about what I didn't like about it, but it, it, this one stops before we get to Lily Savage almost. There's a kind of references to her coming up we never, we never get him getting really into show business. It's very much about his early life. It's very much about Paul O'Grady. It's about Paul O'Grady growing up. 
he makes no secret of his, the fact that he's gay and how he goes about um, trawling for company, shall we say. But there's nothing distasteful about it. And he's perfectly open about it and the whole thing's entertaining and amusing. I like the fact that it is written well and I did like the fact that he was very open about his early life and that he spoke clearly and cleanly about his open life without being any, in any sense morbid about it. I mean, it was a tough enough upbringing, but no more than many of us have gone through and there's an awful kind of misery in some people and this is how horrible I had it when I was a boy and all the rest of it. He doesn't do any of that. seems to have had a very pleasant and enjoyable life while going through some tough times. Time for iWrite in the programme where we look at technology and online blogging and e-literature. And I want to talk tonight about a looming e-book format war because Google have just announced that they'll be getting involved in selling electronic books later on this year. What are Google going to do in that market? Well, they've, they've said that by the end of the year that they're going to be offering publishers and authors a way to, to sell their books in electronic format with, with their new e-store. Uh, authors and publishers, they, they can set their own price, which is an important thing. And Google will make the downloads available in a variety of formats. They're not just going to be tied into one format for one reader, which which is going to be quite Well, quite I think that is an issue. You and I have spoken briefly before about electronic books, and my worry is the whole issue about DRM, as they call it, or digital rights management. So why is this Google thing causing such a stir then? You, can, you sort of picked up on it there, because the, the model that, that Sony have adopted with the e-reader and Amazon with the Kindle is that you buy your dedicated piece of hardware and then you can only read books that you've bought from their dedicated websites. It's like shaving companies subsidising razors because they really want to sell you the razor blades because that's where they make the money. Uh, and Google are, are threatening this this business model by throwing open the doors to anyone who wants to come up with a piece of hardware for reading books. You could come up with one in your garage and, and sell it and th- you use the formats that they've got readily available. Uh, but should that, surely that's a good thing. Surely the fact that the, the, the things are DRM-free... It's probably going to slow down sales of all the bits of hardware. It's people are going to hunker down and get ready for a format or VHS and Betamax, Blu-ray and HD, HD DVD. In fact, remember Blu-ray and HD DVD. It's now only that HD DVDs, they're no longer being made, that Blu-rays are starting to take off. And it's because nobody really wants to be in the losing side of a format war. And most of us are happy to wait and see who emerges the winner before... Well, parting with our hard-earned cash. So the choice that you're going to have this year is, do you choose Amazon and risk having an obsolete Kindle, or do you pick another reader that doesn't function as well as the Kindle and hope that Google wins the format battle? That is that is an issue, because certainly I've held off buying an e-book reader myself for precisely that reason. But where's it all going to go in the long term, Chris, do you think? It's a tricky question. Amazon's got 280,000 fixed-price titles that can only be read on the Kindle or on the iPhone. But it means that you can get an e-book for about half the price of a hardback book. And we've talked about before that the only way that we're going to get into e-books is if they're cheaper than actually going and buying it, buying a book. It's great for you and I. It's rubbish for publishers because they don't want to see their books selling for less than they already do. So they're reluctant to make all but the best sellers, the ones you can get the supermarkets really cheap, mm. available electronically. But Google wants to let publishers set the prices, which means... Publishers will probably like Google system and make more titles available, but we might not like paying more for the books. So it's all up in the air. Well, who's going to win then? Who's going to win this battle? Again, I, I don't know. And it's because you've got two corporate giants trying to change the way we consume our literature. If it was Napster, one guy in his garage coming up with this company that really takes off, he's going to run out of funds quite quickly. 
Google and Amazon and Google and Sony, they've got masses about the money, so they can throw money at it. But I will say, if, if Amazon doesn't hurry up make the Kindle available in the UK, then the battle might be over and done with in Europe before it's really begun. But mark my words, 2010 is going to be the year of the ebook format war. You've been looking at blogs this month. I didn't realise that such a thing existed, but if you go to myspace.com, which I always thought was for bands, and that shows how little I know about these things, who did I find there but Kirk Douglas? Now, Kirk Douglas is 92 and regularly posts what's going on in his life, his musings of the man, as you described it properly earlier, and people respond to that on MySpace, and I just think it's absolutely fantastic. I hope I'm as dedicated to life as he is when when he becomes 92, or when I become 92, I should say. Kirk Douglas had a well-publicised stroke a few years back, and his speech has become quite impaired. Do you think that's offering him and anyone whose speech is impaired the chance to express themselves? Is, is the I very much do. I think that's a, a, absolutely right, and I encourage people in those circumstances to do that. I remember when I first got into voice recognition software, when I was first buying a piece of voice recognition software, the guys who came to install it on my machine were explaining to me that this was a very useful thing for a number of their clients who were otherwise unable to manage the keyboard. And I thought, that's fantastic. I would never have thought it for that. It was because I was unable to manage the keyboard and I'm perfectly able that I was using it. Uh, and it's a great thing for t- dictation. So in Kirk's case, I think that's very much the case. Wonderful. On MySpace, you can only post comments to blogs if you've been accepted as a friend of the person who's doing it. It's just to, to stop anyone posting any old rubbish. Have you applied to become a friend of Kirk Douglas? Not yet. I never really find the necessity of posting comments anyway on people's blogs. I don't think that's a terribly appropriate way to be forward. And anyway, wouldn't it be terrible if you were rejected? Another book we've been reading this week is Cory Doktorov's Little Brother. This is a book that you phoned me up a couple of weeks ago and said, you have to read this, you'll love it, it's great. It's a wonderful book and it, it does two things. One, it tells an interesting and important story, I think. And secondly, it leads us to think about issues about the surveillance society, which we'll come on to in a moment or two. Well, this is the story of Marcus. He's a 17-year-old living in California in San Francisco and he knows technology in the way that, that you and I can only only dream of knowing technology. Absolutely. He is we can't a, even program our video recorders. He's a whiz kid and it gets him into all sorts of trouble at school because he constantly outwits the teachers. Then one day he's out with his friends, he's cut school and he's out and about and he finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time when there's a terrorist attack on San Francisco. And because he's in the wrong place, he's arrested, he's thrown into jail by the Department of Homeland Security, and his civil liberties are pretty much torn up and thrown away. And when he's eventually released, he finds the city is a police state. He's the man that they don't like very much, so he feels it's up to him to try and restore a little bit of order to the world that he now knows, but wishes was more like the one he used to live in. So he goes about trying to take down Homeland Security. And succeeds admirably in relation to all of that, despite all of their attempts to to do him down. This is the modern version of Big Brother, obviously, George Orwell's famous 1984, uh, written in 1948. Um, And what is now happening is that they are setting out how Guantanamo Bay would work if it were on mainland America. Now, the recent election of Obama has kind of changed that, so the book is slightly past its best in that sense only, but as a as an approach, as a, a method of writing and explaining how these things work, it's absolutely fantastic. It probably aimed more at teenagers than at URI, but I think we both really liked it. Uh, and I can't 
really recommend it too strongly. It's a wonderful book. Go and read this man. It's written in the first person, which is something I tend to steer clear of for, for books. I'm not not always a fan of first person literature, but this works well because it's almost as if Marcus is telling his story to other teenagers. I agree with that. And I, like you, prefer the third person. I like people to say he did this, she did that, they did the other thing. But he gets inside this guy's head and this guy gets inside our heads. The other important thing about this is that it does tell an important story in relation to the whole issue of the surveillance society and I think that's well worth talking about as well. People have tried that in the past. I don't know whether you remember a a sort of 60s, 70s writer called Lawrence Sanders who who wrote a whole series of thrillers. Uh, All very good, again, you know, boilerplate fiction in the sense of the sort of stuff that you would pick up at the airport and enjoy. But his first big hit was with a book called The Anderson Tapes, uh, which was about... This was the story of a heist, but told from the perception of people who were listening in on it, uh, having tapped phones and wiretaps and all the rest of it. And it, it told the same sort of story. And here we are, you know, 30, 40 years later, and if anything, it's just got worse. Well, let's broaden the discussion out for a minute and talk more about books and the surveillance society, because this is very much, little brother, a book for today's teenagers. You can probably find a book for every generation that's from the Surveillance Society, but does it go back to 1984, or does it go before George Orwell? Oh, it's long before George Orwell. There was the whole concept of Jeremy Bentham and the Panopticon, for example, which was uh, the construction of a prison in a, in a kind of huge horseshoe shape so that the people in the, the prisoners could always be examined 24 hours a day. So governments have been going for this panopticon approach for as long as we can remember. The House of Lords recently came out and pointed out that there were these huge increases in the numbers, for example, of surveillance cameras in city centres. There's no city centre in Great Britain at all now which doesn't have surveillance cameras in it. You, you can go back to Shakespeare's time. Romeo and Juliet were the two warring families. They had spies, didn't they? They had, they had, they had characters who were there to keep an eye on Romeo and Juliet. But I think... 1984 is the first book that I can remember, but that was the focus of the story. Everything else that had came before was aware and talked about the, the surveillance that goes on within society, but this was all about the scary future that we could have. Orwell was anticipating the technology which we have today, where you were in your own house, where you had your view screen, which not only played uh, programmes for you to watch and only the kinds of programmes that the government wanted you to see, but also watched you at the same time. And we know that these things went on in societies all over the world and do go on in societies all over the world. People are now going through the Stasi records in East Germany, finding out that their neighbours were watching them all the time. Uh, So it's it's an important issue. It's one which is well dealt with in this book. Little Brother, as we mentioned, is written in the first person. Do you think that's a technological thing that's happening in that blogs which a lot of teenagers are reading which is is the new way of writing they're all in the first person do you think that's maybe coming into literature a little bit more than it has done in the past yes i think it is there's been a lot of stuff coming out of the the blogs from into mainstream literature but it also is a good way of getting you into the mind of the person i mean this is about paranoia this is about watching over your shoulder all the time and there's a better no better way of telling that than by talking about it in the first person Instantly you're inside Marcus's head, instantly you're feeling what he feels, rather than having it described to you. And I think that's a better way of going about this particular function than others. It's called Little Brother, it's Cory Doctorov, and I would recommend you read it, not only for a good piece of fiction, which it truly is, but read it also as part of a a whole 
lexicon of books that have existed over the last 100 years or so, particularly the last 50 years, which is looking at how the government is looking at you. It's time for odds and ends in the show. That part where we throw things that we really can't decide where else to throw them, but they've uh, amused us no end this month. I love the story of a man called Nathan Harlan. He was in the news recently. He bought, he bought a dusty old book for $7 at a flea market. This was 19 years ago when he was 16, and it's called The Federalist. It's the, the first of a two-part volume calling for the ratification of the US Constitution. Last month, he sold it for $80,000, giving him an 11,000% return on his initial investment. The world is ill-divided, that's all I can say. I found a thing in Waterstones. Now, Waterstones have this little, have long had this little thing where they write little handwritten comments about their books and put them on. Their staff do it. Now what they're producing is what they call Geekzine, which is about science fiction books and uh, generally uh, manga comics and all the rest of it. And it just brought me back to the old days of the fanzines, the fan magazines. Most people will remember these as being for football. But in fact, they started life in the science fiction community 40, 50 years ago when people produced their own little magazines, sometimes wrote about the books that they liked, sometimes wrote short stories that had no mission of ever getting published anywhere else. And here's Waterstones trying to remind us of those golden halcyon days. Do you pick it up for free? Is it just Absolutely free. Just walk into the shop and they recommend a number of books, some of which I wouldn't recommend. I don't agree with all of what they say. I do agree with some of them. For example, one of the books they, they talk about is Tiger, Tiger, a book by a man called Alfred Bester. A fantastic book. Still, again, quite fresh. Old-fashioned in terms of the science now, uh, but f- in terms of its story, fascinating. And we've got a new challenge we're going to set for each of our programmes going forward. We've got a mission to find one author in each programme who's giving you the chance to have your name used as a character in their next book. And James, you found us one. I found the Day of the Jackal author, Frederick Forsyth, who is auctioning the naming rights to a character in his new book, The Cobra. You pay Frederick Forsyth some money and eventually you become famous. Buy once, give twice.co.uk forward slash lots forward slash Frederick dash Forsyth dash character. That's it for this month's Ready Steady Read. Episode 3 will be available on the 1st of August when we'll have some more suggestions for additions to your bookcase. In the meantime, if you'd like to suggest a book for us to read or would like to take part in our book swap, then email us. The address is books at podcastplace.co.uk. For now though, thanks for listening. <laughs>